I started out with that being my job. Throughout college, I had some retail jobs and things like that. And by the time I graduated college, I was able to actually leave those jobs and just pursue the YouTube MCN. If you are into streaming tech, you watch Epos Box, the stream professor. What decisions in his life led him to entrench himself so powerfully in the world of tech education? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. When you meet someone new and people start talking about what you do for a living, yes. uh, what's your go-to answer at this point in your life? If I'm thinking of what other people would be talking about, probably that guy who makes OBS videos. <laughs> Fair enough. But do, do you avoid the term YouTuber? Someone who is not super aware of sort of the internet world. What do you do when you define yourself? What, when you define your job? At that point, I usually jump to online educator or teacher, ah. assuming they don't ask for like specific schools or something. Because that's effectively <laughs> my job. Like a lot of people want to tie content creation strictly to being like an entertainer and whatever. And I have my agreements and disagreements with that, like the inherent nature of that to the medium. But effectively, like my target goal I seek to achieve is being an educator. That's actually pretty smart. So starting even from the absolute beginning, where were you born? In a, a sort of big city, but contextually in the U.S., not a huge one, uh, called Louisville, Kentucky. So in the middle of nothing with regards to content creation or tech or anything fun. So how was your, I know this sounds a little bit like therapy, but how was your childhood there? How did you define it yourself as being a little bit isolated from the content world and, and tech? So how did that affect you growing up? Well, it was really interesting, especially having grown up as a 90s kid. Everything was about, you know, <laughs> coming off of the tales of Mr. Bill Gates. Everyone who was slightly good with computers was going to be the next Bill Gates somehow because fixing your printer means I can make Microsoft. And so it was interesting because there wasn't necessarily, especially back then, much of any sort of tech hub whatsoever in this area. Like, it's just a city. We had the Kentucky Derby. That was it. And so by being interested in technology, there wasn't necessarily anything around me to cultivate that outside of trying to get ahead in schooling and the like. And so there was a lot of pressure from family, from basically anyone who heard I was good with computers, that I would go to MIT and get this fancy degree in programming and then come back and be the next Bill Gates and stuff. And that's not where my life went. <laughs> you were the uh, the tech wonder kid of town. Yeah. Because I could, <laughs> I could set your TV to channel four to show the VCR. Oh my God. Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So uh, I guess that actually brings two questions. Like, what sort of school kid were you? Were there any subjects related to computer science or anything related in school that you naturally gravitated towards or that adults naturally gravitated you towards them? And how did that affect sort of what you plan to do after school? So that was a big shift for me overall. Growing up, going through school, I was definitely pushed towards tech things. My mom effectively like plotted out this 
you know, red string on the bulletin board of all the pictures of where my schooling would take me from multiple schools bouncing back and forth. And I ended up in a middle school, which was sixth to eighth grade here in the States, that was very focused on their science and technology programs. And so I was in the technology programs, but their like technology was learning Windows XP and Microsoft Office and realizing the world beyond DOS and not necessarily anything like helpful. Like the coolest thing we did was play flash games after school sometimes, but it at least set me on the path. And then moving into high school, I went to what was called a magnet school, which basically had kind of like college majors, but for high schoolers. Um, And so I was in the technology focused math and technology focused magnet there. And I did pretty well there for the most part until my last couple of years where it started really focusing hardcore on programming. And that's where kind of, I guess you could say the red flags started coming up in my brain. Simultaneously, I've always really been good at history. Don't know why. I always shied away from it because I can't stand like a lot of our history schooling is focused on drilling all this memorization of names and dates into your head. And that's just boring and terrifying to me and not what history is about. But the actual like breaking it down and analyzing it and all of that is very interesting and just comes naturally to me for some reason. But as we got later in high school and all of this programming focus came up, turns out I don't really have the attention span or the care to learn programming that much. I think my sophomore and junior year, we started learning Java because everyone thought at the time Java was the future. It's it's not. Uh, <laughs> And then we started getting into some serious, like, hardcore C++ and whatever else from there. And I ended up, honestly, like, I I signed up for a double credit class where it was a class I took in high school but would also count as college credit and just basically didn't even bother finishing it. I didn't do great in my final classes. And by that point, I had already been accepted to the local university's big engineering program where I was going to go do computer science and engineering. Oof. It turns out that between it becoming apparent to me that I really had zero, like, interest or aptitude for programming and just getting into YouTube on the whole, like, by this point, I was already very into the early days of YouTube. I wanted to pursue media. And so there was a big shift after that point of having spent my whole life being told I'd become this big computer science programmer person and realizing that that was not going to happen And so I shifted programs and later shifted colleges to go focus on journalism and basically made the entire pivot from computer science wizardry to media and journalism. That's a hell of a a pivot to put it that fast. (laughs) How did that go? Not great at first. I almost dropped out of college. I probably would have been a college dropout if not for the fact that during my first year at that first university, not at school, weirdly enough, but I met my now wife and I ended up getting them to sign up and go to the second university that I ended up transferring to. And so by having that, like, you know, we drove together and all of that, like having that accountability partner basically made sure I stayed in school and got the degree that I wanted. And there's a lot that I got from it. But had I stayed at that first university, it was one of those bigger universities with like 200 person classes and just all this stuff that I really struggled with to like feel like I cared about. Plus it was like a five minute drive from my house. So I would go home during lunch and then you couldn't make me go back or I'd lose track of time and not go back. And so it was definitely a rough transition. And my parents were kind of confused because I was a pretty 
baller student up till that point, and then suddenly was just like, lol, what's school? But it, it worked out, I guess. <laughs> Did you finish your degree? Yes. Okay, so even as you were getting your degree, uh, after doing this radical change in perspective of how you even sort of visualize your life going, what did you expect to do? Or were you just yoloing it at, at this point and sort of hoping for the best? My number one goal, well, I guess that's technically two, was to get my degree, prove myself on YouTube while I did it, and then go, I guess, even though logistically it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but theoretically just go move out to Hollywood and work for either G4 TV or Machinima. Yeah, really. We're getting all up in the face of Rockstar's new PS2 title, Fully, right now on Sheet. Because at the time, Machinima, the big MCN, they had LA offices where they were doing their own content creation with a bunch of the big, like, wave one gaming YouTubers. That was the hot thing. It was all the people I was a fan of. And I was going to go work at one of those places. And by the time I finished college, both of those places ceased to exist. Now, G4 is coming back, but that's a recent thing. <laughs> so that's actually interesting for a number of reasons. You are mentioning a lot of sort of the early days of, of gaming YouTube-like content online. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned also that you're a 90s kid. So when at, at some point you were consuming this content to the point that you became a fan, to the point that you actually actively wanted to pursue a career in these places that you liked. So when in your life did this wave of internet content became a thing you started to consume? Was this before or after you had sort of switched to a media focus? Were they the reason you moved to a media focus or was just like a thing that happened in the road? It was kind of always there. Like I think, especially growing up in the early days of the internet, which I feel a lot of people don't get this kind of journey anymore, which is a whole separate conversation. But in the early days of the internet, being a tech aficionado or however you want to put it meant that you got to see effectively the like if you were someone who was super into and obsessed with the internet and computing you got to see it grow and develop and along with that you know it wasn't just we built computers and it was great it was all of the sharing that came forth with it it was the screenshots it was the early forms of video and so my first upload to youtube was 2006, like when it was first created. And before that, there was Google Video and Xfire. Xfire was a service that I loved so dearly. It was effectively like a blend of Google Video or YouTube and Steam before Steam was really a thing. It had in-game chat, server management, friends lists. You could upload screenshots and videos. And so I was in a bunch of little, you know, quote unquote clans for like Halo Combat Evolved and some other earlier shooter games. And a bunch of my buddies at the time would upload a bunch of clips to that service or screenshots. And once YouTube became a thing, People wanted their stuff over there, and I was one of the people who could figure out how to download it from Xfire services and then re-upload it to YouTube. And so growing up with that internet and that kind of media culture developing on the internet, that was always a part of my life. I just don't think it registered as how significant it was. That being said, I also had a huge interest growing up in making skateboarding videos. Now, I don't have the cool backstory of, oh yeah, I've got a tote full of tapes of our old skate tapes that we made back in the day with the fisheye lenses or any of that. It more <laughs> came down to my buddy and I could do like two tricks on a skateboard and thought we were so cool because there was no big skater culture near us anyway. 
And we wanted to like make videos for it to get hashtag sponsored for like free skateboards and stuff. And I wanted to get into media for those reasons. And so my parents bought me a mini DV camcorder at one point and we kind of messed around with it. And even in my early YouTube days, like I had webcams and stuff, but early on I had no like cultivation of those skills. So I was privileged enough to be provided the tools, but never really like, I didn't have a media program. I didn't have anyone who I knew who was experienced with this stuff. So I didn't understand lighting or composition. And so I ran around with my buddy with my camcorder and we recorded random stuff and that was cool. And I edited in Windows Movie Maker, but it never really went anywhere. And it wasn't a skill that I developed in any like significant way that it was Fast forward all the way till high school before I realized that, hey, this is something I actually want to do seriously once YouTube became more bigger and realistic as like something involved in jobs that I was like, hey, I should actually learn these skills finally. Interesting. So, but by the time you were out of university, you already knew that this was a thing that could be done. But the ship had sailed in the sense that the things you wanted to join no longer existed. The traditional career paths for it were basically gone. Yeah, exactly. Which, being there, it's impressive how often, like, how quickly these things move, that you Mm -hmm. could enter college sort of aiming for a specific dream, and by the time you graduate, the world is so different that it's sort of impossible to chase that. So, okay, you graduate, then what, what happens next? Like, your North Star has sort of vanished. What do you do with what you have? Well, thankfully, I got lucky enough that through mutual connections and the like, in my last year, year and a half-ish of college, I got an opportunity to go work for a different YouTube MCN. Wasn't a great one. Wasn't one that should have existed, in all honesty. (laughs) Wasn't a good company, but I... Didn't entirely know that at the time. I believed in the premises that they were pushing, that they were fighting for, etc. And I was a huge advocate of their overall messaging. And I had a buddy who worked for, at the time, with YouTube networks get really complicated. At the time, the big thing was a concept called subnetworks. And it was basically a giant pyramid scheme where you had like a big mega corporation at the top that ran the core network that was supposed to partner channels, but YouTube gave them too much freedom. And so they could make smaller networks below their networks where they had a bunch of recruiters who would just absorb as many channels as possible. And everyone gets a cut of everything. And people were making lots of money, but no one was doing anything really good. And A buddy of mine worked for one of those sub-networks, got the attention of the people who actually ran the network and started working for them more directly and happened to get me an in to work for them on a contract basis, running my own sub-network and running a kind of content hub channel for them. And I started out with that being my job. Throughout college, I had some retail jobs and things like that. And by the time I graduated college, I was able to actually leave those jobs and just pursue the YouTube MCN contract job that I had. And for a few years after college, that transformed into something that allowed me to move out on my own, sustain myself and my now wife, and kind of build a life for ourselves. And then once that started crumbling apart, because it was a terrible company, and YouTube realized that MCNs were a bad idea, I was thankfully at the right position to kind of go full-time on my own, and the pieces Somehow the stars aligned and decided that it worked out. So several things there that I (laughs) I find interesting. You're 
not the first person, probably the first person that I talked to in this podcast, but not the first person that I talked to in general, that sort of makes this transition to, oh, I found a job from media to an MCN, learned a lot from it, realized it was terrible, and then went on and did my own thing. Like, I have heard that basic structure like two or three times, which is interesting how, like, at least gives me the idea that at that time, NCNs were not particularly a very ethical business in the whole universe of YouTube, but were very useful for those working on it to sort of gather intelligence of how it, the whole thing works. Is right. that like a, a correct assessment of it? Yes, I learned a ton about the back end of YouTube and how the business side of it works. And granted, obviously, a lot of it changes since then, especially since MCNs are not really a thing anymore. But like, it definitely allowed me an insight into that process that I think may have kept me sticking with YouTube. Because realistically, at the time, the things I was doing was not yet successful. I had not figured out my path or my calling for YouTube yet. And that kind of work allowed me not only to work in the field and still, you know, get a job adjacent towards what I wanted to do, but it also allowed me to get access to trainings and the like. And so when I, I started out working for them, just running like a content hub, trying to make them money. And by the time I finished, I was basically their go-to like channel strategist consultant person that would consult their big channels to help them grow and things like that. Because I had all the YouTube and social media certification trainings and all of this stuff. And so I became their kind of YouTube expert, so to speak, which allowed me to then directly apply that to running my own channel for myself. Right. In fact, I think MadBad from Game Theory had a similar job, but that's another yeah. diatribe. The question that I have there is at what point in this journey in general did your start sort of taking seriously uh, your own channel? Did this happen while you were working at the MCN or did everything collapse around you and you went, well, time to create my own thing? So this was something I struggled with actually for a couple years and had some pretty big like drove my wife crazy kind of existential crises over because I've mentioned the gaming stuff a lot of the time. I started YouTube wanting to be a gaming YouTuber and I failed at that. I could not get traction. I was not making good content. I was not getting the views. And then once I started dating my now wife, I actually pivoted for a little bit. It wasn't sustainable because our lifestyles just aren't combined for that kind of thing. But we actually pivoted yeah. to something that became a huge thing and that we could have probably like dominated the space for. And that was co-op Let's Plays. Before you had much from the Game Grumps or all of these group, you know, you got a whole bunch of dudes playing games together things now. We had rebranded our channel as Let's Play Together and we're doing co-op Let's Plays before that was really a thing. And I think we were doing something really cool, but I had no idea how to market it. I still hadn't really gotten like the hang of like, proper content strategy, thumbnails, titles, you know, I hadn't mastered that game yet and it just didn't go anywhere. And so this got pushed to about Christmas time 2014. And I had just quit my retail job to work full time for the MCN in summer-ish of that year. I had spent the past year like in between the gaming content, also building up my tech content kind of 
library being reviewing just super basic gaming headsets and computer RAM. And then I had started making videos on OBS Studio or well, just OBS at the time. It wasn't even OBS Studio yet. It was a new screen recording software that was free. Everyone was trying to use Fraps or DX Story and pirated copies of that. And this was a free option that everyone could use and no one was talking about it. So I started making tutorials on it. I've always made videos about things that I find or enjoy and they usually don't go anywhere. So I didn't think anything about it. But as we reached towards the end of 2014, it was abundantly clear that I suddenly had all these views on this tech content, like every single tech video would outperform the gaming videos like 100 to 1 or more. And the OBS videos were really taken off and the writing was on the wall to me at this point. Like if I wanted to sustain my own YouTube career of any kind, I would have to pivot to an actual niche, which terrified me. I never liked niching out, but it was that decision of, okay, at this point, it is causing me so much stress. Do I quit YouTube and just focus on the MCN job and try to transition to the bigger job that I originally wanted? Or do I make this niche move and try to still run my own thing? And that's what I ended up doing. It was either Christmas or just New Year's going to 2015. I completely changed the name of the channel. I changed all the graphics and I only uploaded tech videos moving forward for the most part. And that was when I really started taking it seriously and like implementing all the things I had learned. And it actually worked out pretty well. I'm still here. <laughs> it's obviously the the little bit about OBS there is sort of a prelude to a lot of the things that happened. And, and I have questions about that. But I would like to hear your opinions on, was it pure luck or did you have a hunch that this piece of software was going to be a thing in the future? Because it seems to me that you were sort of in the right place, right time sort of moment for OBS. Like not a lot of people were using it. It was right before they exploded and became the sort of streaming and recording software. And it reminds me a little bit of what is happening right now, the time of recording for people making uh, content on DaVinci Resolve, for example. Like a few years ago, everyone was just pure Adobe. Right. Now, uh, this year, I keep hearing people saying, wow, if I had to, to start from scratch, I will do use DaVinci Resolve. I switch my entire workflow to DaVinci Resolve. And I have discovered at least four or five different people who are building audiences this year because they're doing content on DaVinci Resolve and now they have like their own conference and everything. <laughs> and so you're you're telling me this story about OBS. I'm like, ah, that's how must that must have been, but just very early on those days. Yep. So uh, sorry, I, I went to a diatribe there. But the question was like, was this a hunch or or did, did you have any good reasons to believe that this software will be a thing that will take off? So I'd love to pretend that I was some sort of master strategist and like planned all this out from the beginning. I will say that I'm going to contradict the very sentiment in a moment, but I would say that of all of the things to have been this, this was the ultimate like universal right place, right time, because this was a literal culmination of everything I just described to you about my background so far. Yeah. So this is me being good with technology, already kind of having a basis of teaching technology, even if it's to my teachers or grandparents or whatever, like explaining these things that come easy to me, but other people need help with, as well as my niche interest in screen capture and gameplay recording and the like. And the fact that I did happen to see that no one else was making videos on it. And that was what made me think I should, but not necessarily because I thought it would be a successful piece of content, but because 
I saw people were struggling with it because unlike programs like Fraps, where literally you open it and, you know, back when it worked with most games, like you'd open it and you press a hotkey and you're recording. You don't need to know anything other than your computer probably doesn't have a fast enough hard drive for it these days. It was as simple as it gets to a program that has complex, you got to type in your resolutions and figure out bit rates and choose your encoders. And it was simpler at the time, but it was still a very complicated program. So I saw people were struggling with it, and my very first like tutorial on it was literally me opening the program for the first time and saying, a lot of people are real confused about this. Let's figure it out. So here's OBS. Here's the software. I'm just going to intuit my way around the UI and explain it as I go. That way I have the motivation to actually sit down and learn and use the program, and then I'm showing it to someone else. And so a lot of my first tutorials were in a what I call a learn-with-me style, where I have the context, the general usability experience to kind of figure out my way around it, even if I've never seen it before. But in terms of like what the settings are, I haven't looked at it ahead of time. So I'm just explaining it as I find them, which isn't necessarily the most efficient style today, but it's still, I think, has value in some aspects. And so it wasn't some master move of, haha, I know this is going to be the number one streaming program and I want to be the one covering it so much as hey, this is really cool. No one else is talking about it. And a lot of people are real confused by it. So let's make it easy for them. Right. And as as time went by, when did you make a conscious switch to sort of partially the streaming side of technology? Because even at that time, no one knew streaming was going to become the behemoth that it is today. And once again, sort of being an, an OVS expert, that was a, a bit of a right time, right place moment. You are creating these videos. You are specializing in that side of technology in OBS. And all around you, Twitch is coming up. Streaming is having its sort of modern mainstream wave. Uh, what are you observing? What's going through your head at that moment? A lot of it comes down to effectively like what I saw people wanting to do with OBS. Like it came down to previously before OBS, if people were streaming to Twitch, they were using Adobe Flash Media Encoder or pirated copies of Wirecast and all these like higher end, but also equally confusing programs. And so I'd go through to the people I watched or the people I was friends with. And like, if they wanted to switch or if they had a workflow I thought I could replicate, I would just be like, all right, people are doing this. Let's do that. But in OBS. And early on, I don't think I ever really saw, like, it, it seems really obvious now. Like, you say that back to me, and it's like, okay, streaming was coming up, you were covering streaming, good to go. But at the time, I was still just going to be a tech channel. Like, at one point in time, my unofficial slogan that I was trying to pursue was I was going to be Linus Tech Tips, but I filled in all the details that they just kind of left out because they were kind of the higher-level entertainment channel. And to me, as someone who likes to get my hands on with this stuff, I'm like, okay, but how do I actually do that thing? And their videos didn't always have that answer because their videos are like the top of the funnel. So I guess I wanted to be the bottom of the funnel. That sounds really unsuccessful, but at the time it made sense. And so I thought for a long time, and I think I was just rejecting the idea, but I thought that I was going to be just a general purpose tech channel. And I very much resisted the streaming side for a long time, not in the coverage, but in the branding. And so I would cover how to stream to Twitch, how to stream to, I would cover all sorts of new streaming services that have since disappeared, like Hitbox and all that other stuff, because I was experimenting it through to my natural interest in streaming as a topic, because it was this cool new thing. 
but I was also trying to shoehorn in these general purpose tech topics because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. A few years later, before I had gone like full time on my own, I was still living with my parents. I made my first OBS class back when OBS Studio was called OBS Multiplatform. And I didn't call it a class yet. I think I just called it like a tutorial series or something. But it was with that where I recorded a bunch of videos back to back to back all together and released them effectively all at once, where people started calling me like OBS professor or OBS teacher. And the beginnings of my current stream professor branding would be seen. But I rejected that. That, le- that. that jumped me back to my early YouTube days where I didn't want to be stuck playing one game or doing one thing where I didn't want to be niched out as the OBS guy. And in fact, I would go every once in a while, I'd go months on end without covering OBS because I didn't like the idea of being shoehorned into just being the OBS guy. I'm like, I have more to offer. I can teach you everything. But it's hard to market a channel on we cover yes. everything. And so I eventually picked up on that branding and it was clearly always there. And I think to answer your question, it was there because of my own interests. Like it was this hot new thing that combined all of my previous interests of media creation and sharing with the world and technology and the nerdy part of technology combined with the creative side, which I struggled with when it comes to other visual arts mediums. It was kind of like a perfect fusion of it, but I didn't realize at the time that that was also a awesome content strategy as well. (laughs) But you eventually came around to the sort of accepting that as part of your branding. Yes. Four, I think it was officially four years after someone first commented a professor-ish comment that I was finally like, okay, I'm the stream professor. <laughs> you can't fight this forever. Yeah. Had I rolled with it like five years sooner, I'd probably be a little bit better off. <laughs> it's okay to, to share multiple interests. Okay. So a lot has happened in the world of streaming that has given you opportunities for ample coverage from technological changes to platforms that raise, die, or I mean, in the space of what what feels like a couple of years, I feel I have got I have seen people go from oh Twitch is the savior of gaming to oh no why is Twitch doing all the bad things? Which <laughs> seems to be once you get to your thirties, you feel like all platforms have a life cycle, and you are surprised when every single sort of one goes through it, and everyone's surprised every single time. And you have seen through a lot. So what looking where we're standing right now and looking towards the future, looking towards the things that are starting to show up in the horizon for streaming and for your channel and for your content, what is exciting to you? What pikes your interest? What gets you up every morning and, and want to experiment with? That's a good question. I, <laughs> I'm going to have some contradicting answers there because... Honestly, what gets me out of the bed and like running to do my job every day is just like finding new ways to not only just play with the cool toys that I get to like learn and teach and review all day every day, because that's honestly a big appeal of the job. One thing I didn't mention is I also had the inkling of wanting to become a game reviewer for a magazine when I was a kid, because that meant free games. And now I get free toys. So it's kind of the same thing. I do get free (laughs) games sometimes, but you know. Who knew how much work was attached to it when you're just a kid reading a magazine? But also, but not just playing with the toys, but also like figuring out new ways to help people understand tech. Because what frustrates me the most when it comes to any subject 
is when I feel like there are people who don't want you to learn it for whatever reason. And that sounds really silly, but it comes down to even my early tech days when I was trying to learn from like the early Linux crowd or even math sometimes. It's one of those things where like a lot of people feel about certain subjects, one of two minds. One applies to film, one applies to like the tech and math side. With the tech and math side, it's if you have to ask for help rather than being able to find it yourself, then you're not good enough. And you just need to do like enough research or figure it out yourself in order to truly learn it. And I don't know that that's the right way to go. But then with the like film industry side, especially in the earlier days of YouTube, and that's part of the reason I didn't have a clue what I was doing at the time, is back then cinematography and photography was this like sacred art where you had a bunch of graybeards who like hoarded the information behind expensive paid classes and books and all these things like you don't get to know unless you're already in the know. And that seems weird to say in the day and age where there's literally infinite number of videos on YouTube that will teach you the basics of lighting and camera settings and setting this all up. But that wasn't there when I started. And so when I just had a webcam mounted on my monitor and my big ceiling fan light behind me and it looked terrible and I had no clue why, there weren't easy to find in a like web 2.0 thinking like structure. There weren't as easy to find resources and that kind of thing. And I can't stand having a topic, especially when it's like a skill topic that I'm interested in, that there aren't people trying to be helpful about it. And so finding ways to best teach these things that people struggle with very much interests me. And that is probably not the answer you were expecting because you introduced it in the framework of streaming platforms. But there is one thing, and this is going to be, as you mentioned, once you start approaching your 30s and the old man yells at cloud, one of the things that I have most <laughs> certainly learned over my career is that streaming is fleeting on quite literally every level. Every bit that you broadcast up to a streaming platform effectively disappears unless you turn it into something bigger or a more offline-focused content. And the platforms themselves will disappear at the drop of a hat and people will bounce back and forth between them. And as shilly as this might say, YouTube has stayed around forever because the concept of direct purposed content or entertainment or information has been around since the dawn of time. But broadcasts have always disappeared. Like early broadcast TV, there are like a decade's worth of early TV that we created as a society, as a civilization that we don't have archives of because it was purely broadcasted because we didn't have a way to record it yet. And the same, like, I think that core flaw with the concept, as weird as this sounds, applies all the way up to modern streaming. And that, yeah, these days we can always record everything we do, but everyone's approach to it is also a fleeting mindset of, I'm going to do this thing and hang out and it doesn't matter what happens to it afterwards. And that terrifies me. Like, I'm not someone who cares about legacy or leaving something behind, at least on a surface level. Like, some of that stuff grosses me out. But the idea that I could put in, you know, even just on a, on a given day, like eight hours of creating this video work, or even worse, years and years of my life building up this platform that could disappear and that the content I made on it has literally no purpose or existence after that fact, terrifies me. I don't know why, but it just does. And so I love streaming. It's such an interesting technology. I find it so interesting because it's about pushing video and the technology behind video kind of to its limits because it's not just producing the video, but it's doing it all in real time and making sure it's distributed in real time. I find all of that interesting, but I don't think the core values that I care about the most are actually directly related to streaming at all, as weird as that is. And that may be why I rejected the branding so much for so long, but... 
If so, that was super subconscious, and I'm not going to pretend to be that self-aware. <laughs> Sorry, that was probably a ridiculously long answer to that question. <laughs> It was a really good one, though. Thank you for sharing your story with me. Thank you for having me on. I've been on a few podcasts that ask like the origin story and stuff, but most of the answers I've given here today are not things that I have been directly asked about in the same way. Well, I'm hope at least it was a little bit therapeutic. Yeah, it got me thinking because that last answer I don't think I've processed yet, so that's gonna sit with me today. <laughs> Go take a nap. <laughs>